This week, an Earth-like planet turns up close to home. We were sure that the signal we were seeing could not be explained in any other way. And the group looking to develop drugs for some of the poorest patients in the world. I was really looking for something that would make a change, something really needed. Plus, drastically cutting calories lengthens the life of mice with an ageing syndrome. It's like tripling the life expectancy, and that is unprecedented in the mammalian system. This is The Nature Podcast for August the 25th, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Astronomers have discovered thousands of exoplanets, and now they can add another one to the roster. But it's a special little planet for reasons that Kerry has been finding out. When he was a kid, Guillaume Anglada Escude was really into space. Yeah, space exploration, being an astronaut, these kind of things, to do something a bit beyond Earth. As he grew up, nothing about that really changed. I wanted to be a physicist, probably, and explore. He did a PhD in astrophysics. Even now, he reads a lot of science fiction. I've always been a lot into science fiction. I thought it was wonderful to find things that look like planets, that look like our planet, and to find places beyond the solar system. For me, it was kind of this sense of exploration that, um, that pulled me into, into, the, into the topic. So it's fitting that these days his job is to try and find new planets outside our solar system. A couple of years ago, he and his team were looking at some data for our nearest star, Proxima Centauri. And actually, um, I, I read recently a book from Stephen Baxter. He's a science fiction writer, hard science fiction, and that's called Proxima. Um, because I was Googling Proxima to make something, I don't know. Guillaume's Google search threw up Baxter's book, and he ordered it and read it. He found out that the protagonists are on a planet orbiting Proxima, our nearest star. So it's an exploration mission to this planet, and in 20, 30 years, 100 years, I don't know, and he had these um, climate models that he took from papers and tried to make it realistic. One side of the planet always faces the star, continual day, and one is in continual frozen night. Its years are about eight days long, and it's about the same mass as Earth. Guillaume nearly fell off his chair when he read this description because he and his team had just found a real planet orbiting Proxima Centauri and fitting the same description. He didn't know anything about that. And he put it, I mean, he, I think he put an orbital period of 8.5 days and the planet is 11.2, and but also one Earth mass and we put 1.3. So it's kind of, um, yeah, it, 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 it's a bit, it, it, it was a bit astonishing. What Baxter had imagined, Guillermo Anglade Escude already knew to be real. He and his colleagues had started out a few years ago analysing data from a hundred or so stars. Then they'd zoomed in on our nearest stellar neighbour, Proxima Centauri, and seen a signal that looked like it could be a planet. This signal is basically a little wobble in the position of the star as the planet, even though it's small, pulls on it with its gravity. So the Earth, for example, moves the Sun about 10 centimetres per second, so very slowly. But now we have a very small star, Proxima Centauri is small, it's 12% the mass of the Sun, um, and the planet is much closer in, so it moves the star more. That's the idea. What we do is look at the star, we see how the star is moving, and from that then we can map it to the properties of the putative planet. It was easy to miss this signal before, because stars also move their own accord, and there are gaps between observations, so if the planet whizzes round quickly, you can miss it. But after a few years, Guillaume and his team were convinced the planet was real. We were sure that the signal we were seeing could not be explained in any other way. 
They gave it a name, Proxima b. From their measurements, they can tell how massive the planet is, about 1.3 times the mass of Earth, and how quickly it circles its star, or how long its year lasts, 11.2 days. From looking at how close the star is and how much energy it's giving off to the planet, they also know what the temperature might be on the surface. The temperature of this planet would be at minus 40 Celsius if it had no atmosphere. The Earth would be at minus 20, minus 30, if it had no atmosphere. So the Earth is not, we are not at minus 20 today because we have the atmosphere, the clouds, the greenhouse gases. So it just takes a, a, a little atmosphere to, to keep the planet warm. So this is when um, this planet also becomes very special. Special because this kind of warmth means that if, if there is water on the planet, it will likely be liquid. And life loves liquid water. But this is just an educated guess. Here are the other things that the team have to make an educated guess about. It's probably rocky, rather than being a ball of gas. It's probably got an atmosphere, which would protect it from some of the star's energy and make it warm rather than scorching hot. And its size is probably pretty small. Guillem predicts these features because, well, other planets we've found elsewhere are a bit like this. Using the cosmic um, boring principle that things are not extraordinary when you find the first one, right? This should be a common object. And we know that the common objects around these small stars are small planets. In this way, astronomers are kind of the opposite of the smug parent who thinks their child is the cleverest. Guillaume assumes the new planet is distinctly average until proven otherwise. Anyway, enough of the textbook. Bring out the travel brochure. When do we get to go to Proxima b? If you send a probe with our technology, it's about, you could make, maybe cut it to 50,000 years, 10,000 if you send a very small thing. There are these concepts, they have been around for a while, so the only difference now is that there is money on the table, which is to have these very light solar sails where you can power them, you can push them with laser. Um, according to their estimates, you can accelerate them to 20% the speed of light. And 20% the speed of light for light years, so that's um, 20 years to, to go there. So it's, um, I'm not saying yet if it's possible, but it's, um, it starts to be worth thinking now about the topic. For Guillaume, it feels like the discovery of Proxima b is exactly the kind of thing he's been building up to. This is what I wanted to do as a kid, so I'm pretty, I'm, um, I'm pretty amazed that um, at the end of the day it kind of worked out. Uh, I mean, I'm not going there. Probably I won't, I will not go. But um, just being part of the of the of the story unfolding, it's it's really exciting. That was Guillaume Anglada Escude from Queen Mary University of London. You can find his paper at nature.com/nature. And yes, he sent Stephen Baxter a copy. The two may yet team up for a science fiction crossover event about Proxima. Watch this space. Or if you can't wait for that crossover to find out more about the rocky little planet, head over to youtube.com slash nature video channel, where we've got a video all about the discovery. Coming up late in the show, could cutting calories help treat an ageing syndrome? Plus ancient fashion and see-through rats in the research highlights. First, though, the pharmaceutical industry churns out drugs at a cost of billions. But it doesn't have to be that way. Adam takes a look at a cheaper initiative for developing drugs. For decades, medical director Natalie Strube Vogaft built a career in the pharmaceutical industry, climbing the ranks to become a top executive. But Natalie couldn't shake off the feeling that she could be doing something more. Having been in the pharmaceutical industry for over 20 years, 
I was really looking for something that would make a change, meeting unmet medical needs, something really needed. Natalie found her calling at the DNDI, the Drugs for Neglected Diseases initiative. It was founded in 2003 in response to the experience of doctors from the organisation Médecins Sans Frontières. These Doctors Without Borders carry out essential medical work in developing countries. But they often come across diseases that don't have any suitable treatment. And so the DNDI was started to fill this gap. Natalie started research on drugs for sleeping sickness, a disease that is often deadly without treatment. The only treatment was melarsopod, which was given as injections, was very painful and, unfortunately, even though very efficacious, could kill one out of 20 patients. So Natalie began trials for less harmful alternatives. But the trials had to be conducted where the most patients were, remote regions of countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo. And conducting trials in remote hospitals came with a whole host of difficulties. The first thing we had to do was to assess the infrastructure of these uh, hospitals. And that means a lot of things. It meant rebuilding some wards sometimes who were not in a good condition. It meant developing a waste system. Sometimes it meant bringing uh, running water and collecting water so that you know the, uh, the hygiene would be as it should be. This is what the NDI does. We go where the patients are. We do not consider you know, whether it's, it's, uh, it's going to be an easy research or it's not going to be an easy research. As long as we've decided that we have to find a solution for that disease, that's, we, we do it where it needs to be done. But why does the DNDI expect to achieve what the giants of the pharmaceutical industry have failed to do? Freelance journalist Amy Maxman has written a feature on the DNDI. I rang her up in California to find out why drugs for these diseases haven't already been developed by Big Pharma. The name neglected diseases uh, basically gives you your answer right there. They're neglected by the pharmaceutical industry because they affect the poorest of the poor, people who really have no money whatsoever. So the pharmaceutical industry is still a for-profit, a for-profit company, so... If these are diseases that only affect very poor people, they have no market. But doesn't bringing a drug to market normally cost a huge amount of money? And, and if so, how does the DNDI get around that? Yeah, exactly. To develop a novel drug is supposed to take somewhere around a billion dollars in 13 years. Uh, DNDI still spends quite a lot of money. They estimate, uh, I think, 110 to $170 million. They get around it by looking for collaborations. So they'll tap pharmaceutical and biotech companies to see if they can look at their compound libraries. And that's to find something novel that could be a candidate. And then when it gets to the clinical trial stage, their clinical trials are far less expensive because um, the whole point with an efficacy trial is to show that it has an advantage over whatever exists before. But since they're developing drugs for diseases for which there are absolutely no drugs or just really bad options. Um, they don't need to have gigantic trials. So that alone is a lot cheaper. What's generally the attitude to this initiative from the pharmaceutical industry itself? It was unknown territory. And I think a lot of people were skeptical for good reasons. But, um, you know, I couldn't find anyone that does not like this group. And I tried. I really called 
a lot. I talked to a lot of people. People really like this group. They've already have six new drugs out there. They've got, I think, 30 more that are in development. So they've done a very impressive job. Amy Maxman there. But how's the DNDI doing on that treatment for sleeping sickness we heard about earlier? Having kitted out hospitals in the Congo, Natalie Strube-Vorgaft's clinical trials are now well underway. And next year, the DNDI will seek approval for a tablet to treat the disease. This could finally allow for effective and safe treatment of patients in remote locations. And for Natalie, it only confirms that the move to the DNDI was the right career decision. It is so rewarding to work in this, in this field. I mean, it is, you know that there's value, immediate short-term value in what you'll be doing. It is very, 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 very different. Uh, not the technique, not the work itself, but you're, bringing, you're, you're doing something for the good of, of everyone and you're doing it with people who are all so motivated. Yeah, we're very lucky, I think. That was Natalie Strube-Vorgaft, who works at the Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative in Geneva. You also heard from science journalist Amy Maxman, who's based in Berkeley, California. Her feature on the DNDI is out in this week's Nature. Now it's time for the research highlights with Charlotte Stoddart. Ever wanted to peer through the skin of a dead rat? No, us neither. But if you did, we've got just the technique for you. The approach is called Ultimate 3D Imaging of Solvent-Cleared Organs, or Ultimate Disco. The team use a special solvent to remove pigments and fats from the tissues of dead animals. This leaves tissue see-through, and by genetically modifying certain proteins to fluoresce, researchers can reveal the nervous system or other regions in -in glow-in-the-dark fashion. Ultimate Disco indeed. That paper is in Nature Methods. It's not easy to find out about ancient human fashion. Clothing is rarely preserved for long enough to study. But now two teams have peeked into our ancestors' closets. One group studied animal bones from early human sites in Europe. They compared what they found with the animals that modern indigenous groups use for clothing. At the early human site, they found fox and rabbit bones, suggesting our ancestors had a taste for fur. In another study, researchers analysed DNA from clothes found on a 5,000-year-old mummy called Ertzi. Some items were just made from cattle or goat, but Ertzi's hat was fashioned from brown bear fur. Those papers are in the Journal of Anthropological Archaeology and Scientific Reports. Coming up, we look at the legacy that President Obama leaves behind him. Has he been a popular president for scientists? Before that, though, Noah Baker asks whether restricting diet could help extend the lifespan of children with rare ageing syndromes. Dietary restriction can slow the ageing process. It's an idea which has been around for a while. Various studies have shown that controlled cuts in caloric consumption can lead to an extension of lifespan in mice, monkeys and even humans. But what if your body doesn't age like everyone else's? Enter progeroid syndromes, a group of extremely rare genetic conditions which cause the body to age at an accelerated rate. Children born with some progeroid syndromes have an average life expectancy of only 12, during which time their bodies can age between 8 and 10 times faster than would normally be expected for a child. But could dietary restriction help extend their lifespan too? 
That's a question asked by researcher Jan Wiemarkus from the Erasmus Centre in the Netherlands and his colleagues. Their experiment was in mice, but before we get to that, here's Jan with a bit more background on progeroid syndromes. These children don't grow, they have very severe neurological degeneration, they lose vision, they lose hearing. It's a, it's a dramatic disease for which there is at this moment no medication. All of these symptoms are usually associated with people well over the age of 50, but here they're found in children, and the cause runs right down to their DNA. As it turned out in the last decade, uh, when more and more of these conditions became resolved molecularly, uh, that many of them are due to an inborn defect in uh, DNA damage repair. DNA repair mechanisms are vital to keep us healthy as we age, and they operate tirelessly to repair our DNA from an onslaught of damage. So DNA gets damaged every day uh, by uh, factors from outside, UV light, radiation, chemicals in food, in air, in water, but also, and that's an important source of damage too, is our own metabolism. Now, normally, the damage caused by processes such as metabolism can be repaired, but children with progeroid syndromes can't repair that damage as well. So what if scientists try to reduce the damage to start with, say by slowing the metabolism? And that's where Jon and his team started. They created a mouse model of progeroid syndromes. Here's Jon's colleague Martijn Dollet from the Dutch National Institute of Health and the Environment to pick up the story. They actually obtained uh, mutations from people, from uh, patients. They investigate what those mutations were and they mimic those uh, in the corresponding gene in the mouse. The progeroid mice already showed signs of slowing metabolism. Just like children with progeroid syndromes, they don't grow much. Instead, they appear to focus all their energy on repairing what systems they can in their tiny bodies. This is something that the researchers call a survival response. What really got the researchers' attention is this switch from growing to repairing is also what happens when you restrict diet. As a result of them being compromised to restore DNA damage, they already seem to lower their metabolism internally. We uh, wanted to see if diet restriction actually would work on these mice and to see if we could push that a little bit further. So the researchers started a program of diet restriction with some of the mice, but they had to be careful. They are very small and fragile. So we ease them into diet restriction by uh, slowly increasing the diet restriction to 30% of what they would normally eat. And they kept this up, restricting the diet of a group of progeroid mice by 30%. After initially losing some weight, the mice's weight stabilised and remained constant. And after many months, the researchers were shocked at the results they started to see. These caloric-restricted mice, to our surprise, they, they kept on living far beyond what we saw in the mice that had unrestricted access to food. And if you calculate back from the time the intervention was started, it's, it's like uh, tripling the life expectancy. And that is unprecedented in the mammalian system. And it wasn't just life expectancy which increased either. We saw also lots of health parameters. All kinds of pathologies uh, were uh, reduced, so there is an enormous gain in health span as well. Now, these results have been seen in mice, and while really striking, the million-dollar question is, might it be possible to translate into humans? Here's Jan Huimarkus again. I'm very optimistic about this, that this will work in children with these diseases as well. 
the phenotype of the children, that the symptoms of the children and the phenotype of the of the mouse, the, the features of the mouse, they are very strongly similar. And the response, the dietary restriction response itself, is also extremely strongly conserved in evolution. So uh, I have not the slightest doubt that this will also work if you properly do it, and if you carefully do it, of course, with children in the same order of magnitude. In the same order of magnitude. Let's think about that. That means extending the average lifespan of children with progeroid syndromes from 12 to somewhere in their mid-30s. It's an incredible claim. And the studies haven't been done yet, so it's hard to know if they'll work. But Jan intends to find out sooner rather than later, setting his sights on an annual meeting of children with progeroid syndromes. The next is in a few months in Manchester, UK. My objective will be to see whether under very strict conditions this knowledge can somehow be implemented for these children. So you will need to do that you know, with dietitians and to monitor how children are doing and behaving. But um, it's completely for me clear that scientifically uh, this would be the best solution. Jan does appreciate that convincing parents to reduce the amount of food their children eat could be a hard sell. Not least because children with progeroid syndromes are very small and often quite weak. But he does insist that, from a biological perspective, it makes sense. It's very counterintuitive because children that don't grow, our first response you know, is intuitively give them food because they, they should grow. But if you start thinking, you know, these children don't want to grow. The reason why these children stay small is they suppress their growth. And they use their energy not for growing, but for trying to defend themselves. And in fact, they have a low appetite. So probably the, the, the body knows already it doesn't want to have food. And what we now do by diet restriction is helping the body, because then it's even more triggered in this defense mode, in this what we call survival mode. That was Jan Huimarkus and Martin Dolle speaking with Noah Baker. The paper is at nature.com slash nature, and there is also a News & Views article about the work in the same place. In the news pages this week, the US team has been examining Obama's scientific legacy. What projects did he fund? What laws did he enact? How did he fare in the eyes of scientists? US Chief of Correspondence Lauren Morello joined us in this month's back chat to download all of this. That show will come out tomorrow, but we've got a sneak preview for you now. Lauren, is he America's most science-friendly president in recent times? I think it's a reasonable argument. Um, He certainly has, I think, talked a lot more about the value of science than any other president in recent memory. Um, He went out big in his uh, inaugural speech in 2009 when he was sworn into office and he pledged to put science in its rightful place, which I think pretty generally had scientists over here swooning. (laughs) And what kind of um, projects has he managed to put his name to while he's been in office? So, you know, it's interesting. Um, For most of Obama's presidency, he's had to deal with a Congress that's at best reluctant to um, go along with his proposals and at worst kind of outright hostile. It's been hard for Obama to increase funding for some of the key science agencies, but... um, At the same time, he's launched a raft of kind of major science initiatives like the Brain Initiative to map the brain. That involves the National Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundation, and military research agency DARPA. 
um, another project, the Cancer Moonshot. It's a recent one, which is trying to double the pace of cancer research over five years in hopes of finding um, a cure. And then he's made some just major policy decisions, changing NASA's uh, path to get to its eventual goal of sending astronauts to Mars um, and pushing through a host of climate change regulations. He decided to maximize the power of existing laws and his executive powers as president to uh, introduce new regulations to curb greenhouse gases. Um, The downside of this is that some of these policies could be overturned by uh, the next president with the stroke of a pen. Obama's strategy will seem pretty smart if the next president is Hillary Clinton, whose climate and environment policy is in line with his. If the next president is Donald Trump, you know, we could see a lot of Obama's gains erased. And so in, in conclusion, then, would you say that he has done what he said he would do in 2009 and delivered on his plan to put science in its rightful place? I think he's made a good effort. I think, on the whole, he's been a pretty good president for scientists, but I think that science in its rightful place pledge was a really lofty goal, and he hasn't quite gotten there. That was Lauren Morello talking to me on this month's Back Chat, which is arriving on your pod listening device very soon. In that episode, we'll also be talking about Proxima b, the exoplanet we heard about earlier, and reporting on a raft of new preprint servers and how useful they are for finding stories. Plus a game of archive versus snarchive. Keep an ear out to find out what that means. And as ever, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. Drop us a review on iTunes or a tweet at Nature Podcast. Or send us an email, podcast at nature.com, like Maximilian Feigman did. Thanks for your kind words. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Carrie Smith. <laughs>